early days of Seattle, cheap lumber piled high. Buildings built on stilts escaped the floods and tide. Homes, pubs, and warehouses flourished near the shore. The wharves were filled with ships. There was plenty in the stores. In a cabinet shop on Front Street, spilled glue began to burn. Throw your coat on the flame, a worker called in turn. Before it could be done, some water first was tried. The glue exploded everywhere. The men began to cry. Fire, fire, the cry was everywhere. The bucket brigades were running around. Fire everywhere. The volunteers did their best to try and stop the flames. With water pressure low, they were losing all the same. Hollow blocks for pipes brought the water very slow. The drought had dried the city and the wind began to blow. The flames spread so fast, nothing could be done. Many blocks had burned before the setting sun. It burned the shacks on Skid Road and the bubbles soon were gone. The liquor stores exploded and the mighty fire roared on. Fire, fire. Fire was everywhere. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 54, The Great Seattle Fire Revisited, Part 1. The famed British poet Rudyard Kipling remarked upon seeing the aftermath of the Great Seattle Fire that the city resembled a horrible black smudge as though a hand had come down and rubbed the place smooth. I know now what wiped out means. Over the past couple of episodes, I've been revisiting the three devastating fires that hit some of the largest towns in Washington Territory during the summer of 1889, and I wanted to save the Great Seattle Fire for last because this one is going to dive way deeper into the blaze than I did in the very first episode of the show, before I had gotten 50 episodes of the podcast under my belt. I'll admit, I didn't really know what I was doing back then all that well, but I tried, and that's all that matters. With today's episode, I hope to correct any errors that might have appeared in that initial episode and to elaborate further on what I had going on there. Hopefully, you enjoy this retooled and extended episode. Despite the fact that the Northern Pacific Railway had decided to put the terminus of its transcontinental railroad in Tacoma back in 1873, Seattle was far from being on the ropes when the 1880s rolled around and Tacoma had yet to see its rails arrive. The territory of Washington was beginning to be on the threshold of statehood, which its good people had sought for so long. The writing on the wall was clear to everyone, well in Seattle at least, that the city on Elliott Bay would grow into a fine trading, shipping, mercantile, and cultural center whenever Washington finally became a state. They knew Olympia was far too south on the Sound, and while Tacoma experienced a massive population boom after the announcement by the Northern Pacific, it took a decade for the rails to arrive. Everett to the north barely even existed during the mid-1880s, and Port Townsend, the city of dreams, was on the entirely wrong side of Puget Sound to achieve its desired status of being the New York of the West Coast. All of this led many in Seattle to have lofty dreams and expectations of its growing pioneer city. The decision to place the terminus in Tacoma inspired the early people of Seattle to take the matter of the railroad into their own hands quite literally when, in 1874, over 150 volunteers began the arduous task of laying track that went south. This envisioned railroad was intended to go to Walla Walla, which is why it was called the Seattle and Walla Walla Railroad, but it never came close to approaching Walla Walla. 
Instead, it finally reached the highly productive coal fields in Newcastle and Renton, and throughout the 1880s, coal from Washington State was the chief fuel source for the major city of the West Coast during the time, San Francisco. Half a million tons would depart from Seattle's wharves during the 1880s, which meant that wealth was also flowing into the booming city. This attitude shown by the people of Seattle after being snubbed by the railroad barons came to be known as the Seattle Spirit. This spirit would be shown in massive amounts in the days and weeks after the Great Seattle Fire, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. Thomas J. Prosh, who was also the founding editor of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, noted the city's growth in the 1880s in his book A Chronological History of Seattle from 1850 to 1897 when he wrote, the boom that began in 1886 and grew in volume and force in 1887 continued with unabated activity and vigor in 1888. It was manifested in a thousand ways, but particularly in the way of speculation in real estate, in the platting of additions to the city, in hundreds of new buildings, and in scores of graded streets, in new railways, banks, hotels, stores, factories, shops, and people. The inhabitants of Seattle, who numbered 3,533 in 1880 and 9,786 in 1885, increased in number to 12,167 in 1887 and to 19,116 in 1888. Often, early reports and accounts of how and why the Great Seattle Fire started are confused, inconsistent, and sometimes just downright incorrect. For instance, much to the frustration of the owners of the McGowan McTavish painting business, which was located on the southwest corner of the Pontius building, the business would be erroneously identified as the origin point for the catastrophic blaze. Though the fire did originate elsewhere in the Pontius building, McGowan McTavish played no role in the igniting events. See what I did there? The offending culprit for the start of the fire was in fact located below McGow's. Despite the fact that the Seattle P.I. issued a correction to its mistake going back as early as June 1, 1889, when the paper interviewed James Jimmy McGow, the Irish immigrant co-owner of McGow and McTavish. The origin story continued to be mythologized in books and articles published as late as the 1970s, over eight decades after first being corrected. In addition to the confusion as to what business the fire originated in, some sources reported the blaze starting at 922 Front Street, though it in fact started in the Pontius Building, and 921923 Front Street, which was across the street from the erroneously reported location of 922. This mistake can most likely be chalked up to the fact that the reporter of the falsehood relied on pretty outdated information in two different directories of the city, with the 1888 Seattle City Directory claiming on page 142 that McGow and McTavish's shop was on the southeast corner of Front and Madison, and the 1889 Seattle City Directory was far more specific and gave the location of McGow's at the rear of 922 Front Street on page 66 as well as on page 554. To add to the confusion of where exactly McGow and McTavish's business was located, it is believed that sometime before the conflagration on June 6 that McGow and McTavish moved their shop from 922 Front Street across the street and into the below street level floors of the Pontius Building. The directories, even the recent 1889 one, was outdated by the time the fire rolled around, and reporters at the scene likely incorrectly heard that this business was the start of the blaze, and either they or their editors relied on the outdated information in the directories. It's important to note that in 1889, a log bulkhead separated Front Street from the tidelands and waters of Elliott Bay, and the bay extended a lot farther inland back then than it does today. Almost everything in Seattle at the time was constructed of wood from the Pontius building and nearly every other poorly constructed building to both the wood-planked streets and sidewalks which rested on a complex framework of wooden pilings and crossbeams. 
Shoot, even the water pipes that crossed below the wooden streets and sidewalks were made of wood. Another thing to keep in mind during this period of time in Seattle, around Madison Street in particular, was that everything west of First Avenue that we know today was underwater, for there were about 10 feet tall bluffs above the tide flats, and from there the land rose sharply as you headed deeper into the city, traveling east. The spring of 1889 ended in a hot streak that began well before the 6th of June, 1889. That afternoon, at about 2.15 p.m., the greatest disaster to strike the city of Seattle began. It was no surprise that the entire city was dusty and bone-dry, its many hastily built buildings of wood seemed to appear almost baked from the unusually warm weather for the region. One of these buildings was the Pontius, which was located on the corner of Front and Madison Streets and was built over the Tidelands with its front wall abutting the bulkhead along Front Street. There were two stories above street level with an additional two below, which could be accessed by a stairway on the northern side of the Pontius. In the first level of the basement was McGow's and McTavish's business. It was in a lower cabinet shop, which was owned by Victor Claremont, on the second level basement of the Pontius, where the Great Seattle Fire originated. John E. Back, a mid-twenties immigrant from Sweden, worked for Claremont. He was one of the five employees working there that day. I'm going to note here that even with accidents today, multiple witnesses tend to give differing versions of events from other people that saw the same exact event happen. The fact that there were five people working in the shop that day when the fire started is why there tends to be a lot of erroneous information out there. All of these guys gave differing accounts as to what actually transpired, mainly because that in a workplace such as this, everyone is typically at their own different stations, so of course they would be focusing on initially different things than the fire starting. However, most generally agreed that that 20-something Swedish immigrant, John Back, had cut some hardened fat-derived glue with scissors into a pot and then placed it atop a wood-burning stove that was made with divots in it specifically for that pot. It is believed that Back then went on to throw some turpentine-laced shavings into the stove before he went to work roughly 25 feet away. A few minutes later, the stove had gotten way too hot, which caused the glue in the pot to exceed its ignition point. That means that the glue violently combusted, sending flames shooting out of the glue pot, alerting everyone working in the shop. Another employee then reportedly slid a wooden board across the top of the pot to suffocate the fire from oxygen. This was an impossible task since the top could not be sealed due to two small apertures for the handles of the pot. The flames continued to be fed by oxygen, albeit with a smaller amount, and soon the wooden board intended to stop the flames was engulfed in them itself. It's unknown as to who exactly threw a bucket of cold water on the fire, but the stupid decision had been made and there was no taking it back. The glue likely would not have exploded so violently if the water was warm, but the fact that it was cold water made it so much worse. That ensuing explosion spread the fire and soon flames and smoke engulfed the entire workshop almost immediately after, then began spreading up to the McGowan McTavish paint business above. Firemen from a nearby station hauled by hand a hose cart to the Pontius, followed closely by two steam-powered pumps pulled by teams of horses, with one of them peeling off and heading back down to the dock at Columbia Street in order to draw water from Elliott Bay. But due to the fact that the tides were so low, it took the better part of a half hour to get water into their hoses. During the half hour that it took the engine at the dock, firefighters on the scene struggled to figure out exactly where the flames were coming from due to the dense smoke that was beginning to limit visibility along Front Street. The growing number of firefighters, all volunteers I might add, were being alerted to the fire by seamen aboard ships that were moored along the waterfront that could see the dense smoke billowing from the area of Front and Madison Streets, who then began to shriek their steam whistles sending out the alert. 
Because the firefighters could see smoke but no flames, the fire began to spread due to the wooden pilings and supports underneath the sidewalks and streets that adjoined the log bulkhead that separated Front Street from the Tidelands. It was finally about a half hour later that somebody thought to pull up the wooden planking of the sidewalks on the west side of Front Street, and that's when they discovered that the fire was feeding off the below street structures. I want to add here that in 1889 Seattle, fire hydrants were a relatively new municipal improvement, having only first started to be installed two years prior in 1887. The water for the area came from natural springs that were located on First Hill. There were also five goalies that ran water from the top of the hill down into Elliott Bay that had planked streets and sidewalks running above with hollowed-out tree trunks attached underneath acting as sewer and water piping. All of this water was owned privately by the Spring Hill Water Company that had been established in 1881. This company had two wooden reservoirs to hold water on both First Hill and Beacon Hill to meet the ever-growing needs of Seattle during the boom days of the late 1880s. The 5 million gallon Beacon Hill Reservoir was fed by a pump house on Lake Washington that sent water up to the top of the hill. What hydrants that were installed happened to be spread out onto every other city block. Despite the reservoirs, the crude piping, and the lack of hydrants, the string of bad luck that Seattle was facing continued unabated. When firefighters began to try and tap the one and only hydrant that was near the start of the fire, the pressure dropped almost immediately. This was due in part to the fact that the fire by this point had already spread rapidly amongst the pilings and wooden piping located underneath the streets. In an interview in the 1950s with the gentleman that was working the pump house that day, it was stated that the water that was being pumped and meant to be in the piping for the hydrant had by that point in the conflagration was being directly pumped right into Elliott Bay. The Seattle PI wrote the day after the fire, a cheer rose from the crowd as the beat of engine number one was heard and two streams of water were turned onto the fire, but the cheer of hope died away in a wail of despair when after a few minutes of pumping, the streams became so weak that they did not reach the top of the building, showing that there was no water with which to fight the fiend of fire. Many factors led to the rapid spread of the now roaring flames, whether it be terribly constructed wooden buildings in very close proximity to one another, the warm spring weather that I mentioned earlier in the show, or the volunteer fire department that wasn't trained all that well. It all meant that the 6th of June, 1889 day would end in a massive amount of destruction. Historian Clarence Bagley later described in his History of Seattle from the earliest settlement to the present time the area where the fire began. North of Columbia Street and on the west side of Front Street was a row of frame structures mostly two stories in height and with a sawmill, lumber yards, and many wooden sheds between them and the wharves. Even the pavements were of plank. Streets, as well as buildings, were generally on posts or piles and well above the ground or water, leaving a space below through which the fire could travel without hindrance. Next to the Pontius building to the south sat the dilapidated wooden denny block that extended down to Marion Street. It had gone up within just a few minutes of the first alarms being given with thick black smoke billowing from its windows. Unfortunately, one of the occupants of this Denny block was the Dietz and Meyer liquor store, which had stored some barrels of whiskey in the basement of the building, and when the flames finally reached them, the whiskey exploded, sending flames in every direction and helping to fuel the blaze even more. Now, the flames had consumed the entire west side of Front Street between Madison and Marion Streets and soon began to make its way south, beginning to spread even more rapidly thanks to a brisk breeze coming from the northwest. Around this time, Mayor Robert Morin took command from acting fire chief James Murphy. Ironically, Chief Josiah Collins was at a firefighting convention in San Francisco. The acting fire chief was reportedly distraught, thinking the fight was already hopelessly lost. Maybe he wasn't that far from the truth. 
The mayor then quickly divided people into three groups, one to serve as a bucket brigade, another to help remove valuables from the nearby buildings, and a third group was deputized to protect the items that were being removed and placed in other parts of town. One source noted what I've never really thought of, and that is why the fire actually burned for so long. It's mainly due to the difference in the lumber they used back in the 1880s and the fact that most of them contained timbers of huge dimensions. Another fire note is that when a blaze really gets going, it produces a huge amount of heat that in turn can cause fires just by the heat alone with no flames being present. This was also smack dab in the Victorian era with the introduction of lots of new technologies coming in rapid succession with a lot of them still unproven and very unsafe. Material items in buildings such as drapes, wallpaper, and carpeting were probably some of the first items in the path of the approaching flames. It's even been proven that things like turpentine, glue, paint, and other items commonly found in the businesses of the area would easily combust if exposed to high amounts of heat for extended periods of time. As the flames began their march southward on the west side of Front Street, the fire continued to blaze in the cribbings underneath the planks of front, and soon, the buildings that lined its east side were engulfed in flames. This unfortunately meant that the Fry Opera House was quickly becoming in danger. The Opera House was located at the south end of the block at Front and Marion Street. This was a massive four-story structure that was built of brick, had a stucco facade, and measured about 120 feet on each side. When it was opened in 1885, it cost a whopping $125,000 to construct, and, at the time of the blaze, was the most expensive building in Seattle. Murray Morgan's seminal work on Seattle, Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, described people trying to save the riches inside the opera house. He wrote, Inside the building, stagehands worked desperately to haul scenery to safety. A rescue party climbed to the Masonic Hall on the third floor and came out with the more important effects, but the building was lost. Due to its sturdy construction materials, it was thought the fire would not progress past it to the south. These hopes were quickly dashed, however, when a flaming cinder sent its roof ablaze. Frederick James Grant described in his 1891 book, History of Seattle, Washington, To the dismay of those who looked up at the opera house, they saw a slender tongue of flame on the mansard roof and the cry, The opera house is on fire. All eyes were turned thither, and the probability of a great conflagration was realized. As Grant pointed out, after the flames spread to the buildings, extensive timber framework and it nearly collapsed, many saw a great disaster beginning to befall their frontier city, and they realized then that it was only going to get a hell of a lot worse. Hundreds of volunteers were soon fighting the flames futilely with bucket brigades and wet blankets. The fire continued its march south when the flames jumped Marion Street and caught the brick Reining block on fire. One of its walls collapsed and the wooden building to its south went up in flames, soon spreading to the brick Kenny building, which collapsed entirely not long after catching fire due to the growing intensity of the heat. The collapse of the Kenny was said to have sent up a cloud of sparks and burning brands that scattered over the roofs of the adjoining blocks. By late afternoon, the billowing black smoke could be seen from as far away as Tacoma, and reinforcements had been called in from as far away as Portland, Oregon and Victoria, British Columbia. Less than an hour and a half after the blaze started in the Pontius Building, every building along both sides of Front Street between Madison and Columbia Street was engulfed. By 5 p.m. that evening, the imposing brick building that housed Tokla's, Singerman, and Company's San Francisco store was alight. This building stood on the southwest corner of Front Street and Columbia and had been described as a majestic bookend for a row of new masonry retail office blocks that was built in the fashionable Italianate style. This building was the northern anchor of the only unbroken line of brick and stone buildings located in Seattle. This line went south along the western edge of Front Street with Columbia down to Yesler Avenue, which is today's Yesler Way. 
Other buildings in this row included the First National Bank, the Seattle Land Company Building, Gordon Hardware, the Union Block, Merchants National Bank, Safe Deposit, Stewart & Holmes Drug Company, and Seattle Hardware. Mayor Robert Morin ordered that the Coleman Block on the southeast corner of Yesler and Commercial Street, which is today's First Avenue South, be dynamited to attempt to create a fire block along with the San Francisco store. This proved to be futile and was in fact actually pretty counterproductive, resulting in the city's limited supply of explosives being quickly drained. When the fire reached Gordon Hardware and Seattle Hardware, before the flames reached the nearly 50 tons of ammunition stored, the intense heat of the conflagration caused the ammunition to start cooking off, meaning that the heat caused the ammunition to undergo what's called thermally induced firing, and a cooked-off round usually causes a sympathetic detonation in surrounding rounds, causing one big chain reaction on the two hardware stores. The people of Seattle should have learned from the destruction of the Fry Opera House when it foretold that what little masonry buildings the city had would be no match for the marching flames, since their roofs and support structures were made entirely of wood. Every magnificent structure that lined Columbia down to Yesler Avenue was eventually engulfed and lost to the heat of the flames. Those that didn't end up collapsing wound up roofless, windowless husks, standing up precariously as they overlooked a scene of complete and utter devastation. Despite all the efforts of people and buildings, the fire continued to make its southern march burning through and completely destroying any and all wood, brick, and stone structures that found itself in its intense path. The Great Seattle Fire did not have one single front moving southward along Front Street and east to 2nd, however, and another front moved west to and then along the waterfront of Seattle. Nearly the entirety of mills, warehouses, wharves, and piers were perched on pilings that were pounded into the muddy floor of Elliott Bay. Directly behind the Pontius Building and Denny Block were the massive commercial mills numbers 1 and 2. These stretched over an entire city block, roughly between the upland streets of Madison and Marion, which both terminated at Front Street at the time. Soon everything along the entirety of the waterfront was ablaze, and the flames continued to spread rapidly. Keep in mind that during the late territorial days of Seattle, the Tide Flats still held quite a bit of real estate along the city's waterfront. Practically every single foot of the waterfront, from north to south, was occupied by either buildings or some sort of storage lot, oftentimes filled with lumber and other highly flammable products. The flames quickly raced north along the wood pilings and cribbing underneath the waterfront structures, making it all the way northward to University Street. Thanks in part to both the heroic efforts of a bucket brigade and the fact that excavations had been underway for two different buildings, this time curating an adequate firewall, further halting any further northward march of the blaze, making the foot of University Street the northern edge of the damage that the city incurred. The waterfront to the south had far less luck and excavations going for it, with nearly every man-made feature such as wharves, piers, and buildings being destroyed down to the pilings, appearing like a bizarre and stunted forest along the tide flats as the fire continued its march. Only one wharf escaped the massive flames and was located at the foot of Union Street. Moving north to south, some of the structures lost included Coleman's Wharf and Hay Warehouse, Yesler's Wharf, Crawford and Harrington's Wharf, the Oregon Railroad and Navigation Company's Ocean Dock, Puget Sound Railroad's Ocean Dock and Warehouse, the Coal Wharf at the foot of King Street, the Stetson and Post Mill, the Seattle Dry Dock and Shipbuilding Company, along with most every shed, storage space, and structure in between. For Henry Yesler, the fire and loss of his waterfront complex was nothing new. In fact, he had twice before lost it to flames in 1879 and then again just two years before the Great Fire in 1887. His extravagantly huge wooden mansion on 3rd and James Streets would be saved, though it did end up falling victim to a fire on New Year's Day of 1901. Murray Morgan wrote in Skid Road after the fire reached Trinity Church and how few wished to save it. 
It was a wooden structure and had on its front end a tall bell tower, one volunteer fireman said later. It was so ugly the fire would have been a failure if that tower had been left standing. Pretty amusingly, a judge kept a murder trial in session as the fire blazed intensely around the courthouse until it was only about 100 feet away, then quickly went on to ask the jurors to please help save the courthouse and its records. As 120 prisoners were removed from the courthouse, a young man went to the roof and poured buckets of water on the roof to stop it from burning. Earlier, I briefly mentioned that Robert Morin, the young and energetic mayor of Seattle, had organized the gathered onlookers to attempt to fight the flames, though this soon proved to be an impossible task. The second priority that Mr. Morin set was that of saving what items they could save from the buildings that were in danger from the path of the flames. His third and final goal was to prevent what he called incendiarism by irresponsible characters who saw the chance for plunder. 100 special police would end up being called in to keep the peace and guard the items that had managed to have been saved from the doomed and still burning buildings. Telegrams for help would be sent to towns and communities all over Washington Territory, with many giving their help and support without any resistance. In addition to the bucket brigades, many other long lines of citizens passed many salvaged items hand-to-hand from one another to keep them from the many advancing fronts of the fire, with many being carried to places of presumed safety, but they actually proved not to be safe at all. Literally tons of rescued goods, furniture, clothing, and everything else you could imagine were piled in the side streets and on the wharves that were located below Yesler Avenue, with many mistakenly assuming that the wharves would never feel the kiss of the flames. A small amount of goods would be taken aboard ships and moved back to safety in Elliott Bay, but the majority of the goods would meet their fiery demise thanks to airborne cinders and the continuing intensity of the heat from the flames. As the sun began to set on the smoke-reddened western sky, the people of Seattle, who had been battling for hours by that point to save their city, were able to at least claim one major victory for their efforts when they had been successful in saving the four-story Boston block. This brick structure was located on the southeast corner of 2nd Street in Columbia and suffered from some fire scarring, but outside of that, it remained relatively intact. It was the only surviving brick building in the city's commercial core when prior to the fire there had been about 30 other buildings built of brick in that district. The battle to save the Boston block would be described by Clarence Bagley some years later when he wrote, The window casings of the large brick Boston block commenced to smoke and the glass cracked. Nearly everyone thought the building doomed, but by heroic efforts with pails, pans, and anything that would hold water, the windows were protected until the greatest heat of the fire had passed by. No other brick building was left unburned in the business district. There were now only two other masonry buildings in the path of the advancing flames. The Yesler-Leary building that stood at the northwest corner where Front Street met with Yesler Avenue, as well as the triangle-shaped, almost flat-iron-styled Occidental Hotel to the Yesler-Leary buildings east. The Occidental Hotel was easily the finest in the entire city, if not the entirety of Washington Territory, and many Seattleites thought that it was fireproof. Neither of these large masonry buildings survived the inferno that was the Great Seattle Fire, or gave the flames much pause either for that matter. Once the fire crossed over Yesler and headed south once again, there was nothing more that could really be done to fight the blaze. The fire had finally reached the oldest and flattest part of Seattle and tore savagely through the numerous hotels, taverns, rooming houses, and brothels. All the streets that were located west of Front and Commercial Street or south of Jackson Street were all built on pilings and were completely destroyed. The people of Seattle by now were exhausted and feeling about as down and out as they could about their situation. They took refuge in the hills to the east and north of the main business district and watched the unfolding drama as Clarence Begley again later wrote, 
As the flames simply ran riot among the frame buildings on the flats, it moved with a whirlwind of its own making in front. There was no time to save goods and not very much time to save life. By 9.30 it had carried devastation as far as there was anything to burn and then stopped for lack of material. Along the eastern boundary of the fire, smaller buildings with less fuel for the fire finally allowed the firefighters to gain the edge over the fire there, with the fire finally burning itself out around 3 a.m. the next morning. Though the coal bunkers along the waterfront continued to burn for several days afterwards, for all intents and purposes, the Great Seattle Fire of 1889 finally came to a smoldering end. To many men, women, and children who had been made homeless over the course of the previous 13 hours, and the exhausted and beaten men who gave their all to fight the flames, they had very little time to think about and consider the significance of what just went down in their city, or went up in this case. There are many varying and wildly inaccurate estimates, but several contemporary sources agree that roughly 116 acres, about 58 city blocks in total, wound up as smoldering ash and embers. Most of the things that defined Seattle as a rising metropolis were gone, such as banks and financial companies, stores, land companies, doctors and lawyers' offices, nearly every wharf and pier, numerous mills and warehouses, and literally hundreds of other businesses of all stripes had met their demise at the kiss of the flames. Most fortunes and goods or supplies were incinerated or damaged beyond all usefulness. Fortunately, the records of the city and those of King County were saved, but many other outside financial records, business records, medical records, legal records, and even entire law libraries wound up feeding the roaring flames that June 6th. Prior to this massive inferno, Seattle was just a pioneer boomtown and was viewed by many as nothing more than just a backwards cesspool. It was for all intents and purposes just a large glorified logging camp with some families and a couple children but was thought of as a quite nasty place and was known for its disgusting stench. Before the fire, Seattle had been trying to puzzle out how to deal with their bad reputation and become a legitimate city like those of the East. They knew they would eventually have to raise the whole area of Pioneer Square and finally deal with the severe sewer problems and rat infestations that had gotten entirely out of hand by the time 1889 rolled around. The fire allowed Seattle to finally transition from that of a rough-and-tumble timber and coal town into a majestic and highly productive seaport. It's estimated that during the Great Seattle Fire, more than a million rats and untold numbers of ticks, fleas, and other disease spreaders met their end, including at least one horse. Rather remarkably and almost miraculously, there was not a single human loss of life from the fire that 6th of June in Seattle, though a man did have a heart attack and pass away, probably due to the stress of the fire. No crying or mourning period was needed, and there were no funerals that needed to be attended to, so before the ashes of the ruins cooled, the political, financial, and business leaders of the city were working together with an uncommon amount of harmony to plan the rebirth of Seattle, just like the phoenix rising from the flames. As I continued to work on this episode, I realized that this was going to be over an hour long, so I decided to turn this last look at episode 1 into a two-parter. In part two, I will go into how the people of Seattle bounced back from the fire and completely rebuilt their city and lives along the way. Martial law is called and the territorial militia is brought in to stop any potential lootings in the days after. Gone would be the amateur, unpaid, and often unmotivated fire department to be replaced by a fully professional one with dedicated individuals making up the Seattle Fire Department. Its terribly inadequate water system would be replaced and modernized. Seattle's near-complete lack of building codes or regulations with any sort of enforcement would be gone, replaced with a more stringent and complicated system to ensure the next big fire would never become another Great Seattle Fire. 
Also gone would be a waterfront that felt, while still somewhat serviceable, was highly flammable due to its expansive systems of wood supports and pilings, to be replaced with a huge effort to reclaim the tide flats and make the land of Seattle work more for its people instead of against it. Listen two weeks from now to learn how the Great Seattle Fire continues to shape the city of Seattle to this day. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include Frederick James Grant's 1891 History of Seattle, Washington, Clarence Begley's 1916 History of Seattle from the Earliest Settlement to the Present Time, Volume 1, Murray Morgan's excellent 1951 Skid Road, James R. Warren's 1889 The Day Seattle Burned, Robin Natalie McNair Huff's 2016 Washington Disasters, Milford Tanner Andrews' 2005 Pioneer Square, Seattle's Oldest Neighborhood, Bill Spidell's Sons of the Prophets, the Seattle Now and Then website, the 1889 Magazine, and HistoryLink.org. Thank you for listening to Episode 54, The Great Seattle Fire Revisited, Part 1. Part 2 will be released in two weeks, and will wrap up this look back at the very first episode of the podcast that I originally covered back in December of 2020. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. The bucket brigades were running around fire every day. The fire marshal was gone on a trip to Frisco Bay. The mayor took control, the inferno had its way. Now just a smoldering pile, the bustling town was gone. The people, not the rats, were saved. Seattle would live on. Seattle fire in 1889. Cedar buildings burning one block at a time. All because some glue spilled and burst into flame. The rainy emerald town would never be the same. Fire, fire, there was fire everywhere. The bucket trays were running around. Fire everywhere. Fire, fire, fire was everywhere. The bucket trays were running Rudyard Kipling, a famous English poet, arrived by ship that very next day. Here's what he had to say. A horrible black smudge as though a hand had come down and rubbed the place smooth. I know now what being wiped out means.